Hello, Hello. and welcome to Are You Karate Kidding Me? Your source for recaps, reviews, and items of interest (laughs) from all around the Miyagi-verse. I'm your host, Colin Kennedy. I'm your host, Jenny Carlson. And we are back in the saddle again. Let the Cowboys ride. It is season four. And we are here for big, big season four action. We are. If you're following along, you may have already heard our overall season reactions. Because mm-hmm. for us in extended Miyagi-verse time, the show dropped relatively recently. And we are rolling right in to our recap and analysis of the first episode. Do we have any items of interest from around the Miyagi-verse to share, Colin? I mean, the season four drop could not have gone better. I think the fans are loving it. It's been rated as number one globally on Netflix for like the entire last week or so. It's been out, right? Cobra Kai rated 95% on Rotten Tomatoes for what that's worth. Overall? Or just, the, I think this season is 100% and the show is overall 95%. Oh, you're right. I was mm-hmm. looking at the show overall. It's a critic's darling. It's a critic's darling. And as we have mentioned recently, we partied real hard. I lost my voice for a minute, but we are back in the saddle again and, and feeding off of all the great press. Mm-hmm. Tons of awesome interviews with all the Cobra Kai cast, or at least many, many principals. And with the showrunners, everybody's kicking into high gear, creating new content amongst the fans and content creators. It's just a wonderful time. Oh, and there's actual like new things to get. The season three DVDs are out. That's true. The season four is premiered, so that means it's time to go pick up your season three box sets. That's right. They've got a blooper reel, et cetera, et cetera. Also out on all the streaming services is the season four double album. With oh, the that's soundtrack. right. Yes, very nice. Yeah. A whole album just for the tournament at the end of the season. As as Leo Bierenberg and Zach Robinson blow our minds yet again, with a little help from Carrie Underwood. Sure. <laughs> and also that will be out on CD at La La Land, and I'm sure there will be an LP release for vinyl, maybe from Mondo or something. Oh, that yeah, is TBD. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, but lots of exciting things, and we're excited, too, because... One thing to note on Twitter is that Leo Berenberg has been doing a kind of liner notes series where he creates threads that explain all the different tracks from the episodes. That's been so cool. Yeah, it's been super neat. So that, I think, is all the news. I think that's a pretty succinct news roundup. So shall we get into our recap and break this episode down scene by scene? I am excited to dive in with you. Excellent. So, without further ado, let's begin with Cobra Kai, Season 4, Episode 1. Let's begin. Let's begin. We open Scene 1 on a set we'll become familiar with. I'm just going to go ahead and dub it Terrence House now. T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E. That's right. Terrence House. And we open on a ridiculously luxe-looking beachfront home. This is the place that I expected Daniel's house to look, like the LaRusso Mance, right? Because Mm -hmm. he's this rich car dealer and is way up there while Johnny's way down here. But no, this is like true wealth. We hear 
piano music. This is, of course, La Campanella by Franz Liszt, one of the hardest pieces to play on the piano. And we pan in across a very luxurious living room to see a man with flowing silver hair in a paisley red dressing gown playing it on a grand piano. A robed figure, evocative <laughs> of the robe that Daniel wore at the end of Karate Kid 2. And this person's interrupted by a phone call. Before we get to that phone call, let's just be clear. This is Terry Silver. He's got the dressing gown. He's mm-hmm. got the luxurious house. He's even got silver hair. And he's doing the ultimate villain flex. He's a Terry Silver Fox. Let's be clear. He's Terry Silver Fox. Hashtag Terry Silver Fox. Get at us, Twitter. You heard it here first. Anyway, we heard it here first. So not only is he doing the standard villain flex, right? Think of all the villains who play the piano. I mean, there's the Phantom of the Opera, the technically, I, mean, I guess, villains the Villains love playing piano. So many villains play the piano. The darkness of the music of the we played the organ, which is not technically a piano. There were Bond villains who played the piano, right? And Rice's Lestat. You've been a very naughty little girl. That's true. And yeah, I mean, Bond villains love playing piano. Mr. Bond, Mr. Drax. Norman Bates plays Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Mm-hmm. We all go a little mad sometimes. So this is a trope you're saying. In this, they are announcing that Terry Silver has the capacity to be a villain and the tools, right? Because Mm -hmm. really, what do villains need if not long flowing hair, a paisley red dressing gown, and a giant piano? That is Thomas Ian Griffith actually playing the piano. This Renaissance man truly has it going on. Oh, this guy does all his own stuff, which is pretty outstanding. As we know from Instagram. He's got the skills to pay the bills, and the bills are piling up over at <laughs> Cobra Kai. <laughs> and he's getting a call, right? He's mm-hmm. getting an anonymous phone call, an unknown call, which he answers, but then he hears Crease say, Hello? Hey, long time. Which was, of course, the last thing we see of Crease. Right. At the end of season three. This is uh, one of a few big red herrings we get this season, since all we know from this conversation is from the end of the previous episode where Cree said, hey, long time, but apparently Terry just hung up. Hey. Long time. And Kreese was actually talking to no one in that scene, which is an amazing, weird trick to kind of throw out. When we hear Kreese beginning to tell Terry Silver what he wants to do, Terry Silver's already hung up. He doesn't care. He's going to instead end on a high note with a big flourish at the end of La Campanella. And now we cut to Miyagi-Do, where we pick up with Daniel and Johnny exactly where they left off at the end of Season 3, saying, let's begin. Another weird little red herring as we learn that the very next thing that happens is Dimitri going, Uh, Begin what, exactly? This begins a kind of call and response where Daniel's like, uh, Begin a new era. And uplifting music begins as Daniel talks about how the stakes are higher than ever before. Mm -hmm. He's saying Cobra Kai is going to use every dirty trick in the book. But as Daniel leans in, Johnny begins to say, By kicking their asses so hard, they shit themselves. And they do this really cool thing with the soundtrack where it's flowy music for Daniel, sort of rock and roll music for Johnny. 
any excuse for a big speech from these two. It's just, unfortunately, we've never actually had them both have to give a big speech at the same time, and they tend to trip over each other. Anyone who's worked with teachers knows that the curricular coordination is not a strong suit with many professors or teachers. At any rate, everyone looks a little confused by the mixed messages they're receiving, and Miguel and Sam look a little apprehensive. It's time to warm up, so the students line up. While Daniel tries to lead them in a little simple kata, Johnny looks on confused and sets everyone into fighting positions. So as the Miyagi-Dos begin their kata, the Eagle Fangs advance, and Mitch accidentally kicks the crap out of Nate. Shit, dude, I'm sorry. Now we cut to a fight in the, on the grass in front of the rock. Yes, and kindly, Netflix has seen fit to scan the rock, and the AI has deciphered it for us. This happened when we watched the premiere when it dropped a few days early, and we see Johnny leading the students and sparring. Well, Eagle Fang, right? It's Bert and Mitch, and they're sparring while all the other students kind of look on in confusion. It just flashes up all of a sudden. NVC's only the garden without the rocks, and in that first time, we were like, oh, is this a mistake? What Did that auto-translate? Mm-hmm. That's what I had assumed had happened, but obviously they wouldn't be showing us this if it wasn't important to the narrative, right? Clearly it's not Hayden Schlossberg's joke that it says, here lies Sato. I mean, it's important to the narrative. I think it's one of the little promises that the first few scenes make, right? Like, we see that Terry has the capacity to be a villain and he's not interested in John Kreese, or he has strong feelings that keep him from answering the phone. Mm -hmm. And we see that everything's kind of a mess. So maybe the message is that all these characters will not have a clear perspective of each other's struggles. Mm-hmm. So they will perceive the other as more powerful or better situated. Mm-hmm. Not clear. Let's continue with the sparring. It's certainly a message from Mr. Miyagi to Daniel yeah. from the beyond. Yes, it's true. So Daniel doesn't understand why the, if Eagle Fangs don't know defense. And Mitch answers him and, and Nate throws him back against the rock, which Johnny can't understand why there's a rock in the dojo. Yes, and then cut to circling practice as Dimitri and Sam circle each other, and Johnny kind of razzes them on. Dimitri says they have to be provoked, and of course, Johnny, ever the provocateur, is happy to oblige. Here comes another sequence of Daniel having the Miyagi-Dos wax on and wax off on the vintage cars, while Johnny has the Eagle Fangs cleaning up another vintage car, his 93 Dodge Caravan. That's right, clean it good! Wanted to look brand spanking new. The poor Cobra Codmobile, two seasons behind us, so we Johnny has now officially made it to the Eagle Fang Mobile, which, while not as glamorous, certainly kicks just as much ass. There is a scene here, Johnny and Daniel are like talking after it's become clear that Daniel is grossed out by Johnny's behavior, and he's got the students running around the, the barrels with fire in them, kind of like Rocky. Mm-hmm. And there is a moment in that scene where Mary Mauser is just sort of like in the background like running and going ah! as she runs around and I think it is the funniest thing Mary Mauser has done in four seasons. With all the Miyagi-Dos and all of the Eagle Fangs here under one roof there's certainly a lot of fun opportunities for business in the background from all of the young cast so definitely on your rewatches keep your eye on that background because there's a lot going on. Also one of my favorite lines from Johnny. Come on you maggots faster! And to keep with the Rocky references that Daniel says to Johnny that they're going to be sued. Johnny's like, for what? So, yeah, it's a mess. After Sam's running around the flaming barrels, Johnny makes Chris run in circles around a baseball bat, and when Chris gets nauseated, he runs to Mr. Miyagi's boat to throw up in. Not the boat! Not the boat! 
Yeah, sadly. Daniel's freaking out because Chris is going to screw up with the boat. It's really rich that Daniel's so disgusted by Johnny's behavior when Daniel himself uses manual labor as a teaching tool. I don't think it's the manual labor that ever put them off. It's that Johnny doesn't see the point in certain types of labor. Then cut to inside the dojo. We've got an eagle versus eagle while Mitch is sparring with Hawk. Hawk puts his foot right through the paper windows. Yeah, I guess I should correct myself and say that Hawk isn't necessarily an eagle fang, right? Hawk didn't go to Eagle Fang when Miguel did. So Hawk is kind of a free agent between. He just looks like his Hawk form right now because he's got a Mohawk. Hawk is default Eagle Fang right now because he didn't go immediately to Miyagi-Do and also he's in Eagle Fang colors for this part of the show. Now that Hawk, he's putting his foot in it, right? Both literally through, literally. The, through the rice paper of the door yeah. and metaphorically... We know because last season he was a bully to just about everybody. Yes. So now that we've established that Hawk's still going to be a problem, we cut to... Cobra Kai. That's right. Where, where Tori is big mad. She is big mad that Sam beat her in the last fight and she is punching the crap out of that dummy. In the background, we hear Kyler talking about how he's going to go to ASU, which is really the Harvard of the West Coast. Sure. That's in Arizona. Yeah, Kyler gets a lot of weird little, like, partial dialogue throughout the season where it's like we inter we find Kyler in the middle of these odd conversations. Well, I mean, the odd conversations serve to remind us that Kyler and Tori, who are currently the two principals of Cobra Kai at this exact instant, yes. don't have a lot in common besides no. wanting to kick everybody else's ass. That's right. And Kyler's kind of complacent. Like, the lead into that is that his dad wants him to go to Harvard, but he wants to go to ASU. Mm -hmm. And Tori just has no time for this. Tori probably can't even consider college right now. We know that her circumstances are dire at home. And she comes over and, and, you know, tells Kyler and the others they're pathetic. And from that, we get some exposition from Kyler that says half the team quit after the incident at the LaRusso Mance. Kreese overhears their conversation. He's sitting at the desk. He clearly just got off the phone from trying to call Terry Silver. Mm -hmm. the, the bell of the door rings and Robbie comes in. Robbie's wearing plain clothes, no geese here. And he's loading his stuff up into a duffel bag. Kreese thinks Robbie needs to suit up and, and line up. But Robbie said he never said he was joining Cobra Kai. He just needed a place to crash. Kreese wants to make it clear that Robbie can stay as long as he wants. But Robbie makes it clear to Kreese that this was a bad idea. He doesn't want to be part of this bet that Kreese has going on with Johnny and Daniel, right? About the All Valley. Exactly. And that's a, that's a bit of a, a backpedaling, right? Just like they showed that Terry was a red herring. He wasn't immediately going to go with Kreese. Mm -hmm. Johnny and Daniel don't have it together. Robbie is not on the same page he was in the previous episode, in the season three finale, mm -hmm. when he told Johnny he was going to use Cobra Kai to control his anger, now Robbie's like, yeah, but if you're going to play these games, I'm not into it. And Kreese has an amazing line here where Robbie's like, I'm not going to be a pawn in your game between Miyagi-Do and Eagle Fang. And Kreese is like, I don't think of you as a pawn. I think of you as a king. I mean, Martin Cove, his delivery here is really good. Kreese makes it clear that he gave Johnny every opportunity to come back. And here, linking the fate of his dojo with the fate of Robbie Wright, he says, Johnny left you for Diaz and left you with that mark on your head. By leaving Cobra Kai, Kreese equates it to him leaving Robbie for Miguel. 
And Robbie's like, well, I'm still not in it for the trophies. And Kreese's point is, it's never about the trophies. It's about being a champion and having the street cred, right? Because he's like, both Daniel and your dad have coasted off that street cred for 30 years <laughs> to varying degrees. Well, the other thing that's about that is he says, it matters if you win or lose. That mm-hmm. follows you for the rest of your life. And we can see some of Kreese's treatment of Johnny, but really more fundamentally, we see Kreese's philosophy coming out of Vietnam, right? The show has set it up so that we are meant to view Kreese through the lens of his experiences in Vietnam. In some ways, I think that could lead people to an overly charitable interpretation of Crease, as if that exonerates him for his behavior. But I don't think the show goes that far. I think the show just wants to make it clear, this guy is this way for a reason. He's This is his interpretation based on his experience, and now he's going to insinuate that into Robbie's life. It's made it crystal clear for me. Crease has always been toxic, but the show has gone to great strides to show us exactly how he formed his toxic ethos. Meanwhile, at the LaRusso Mance for the first time this season. I'm sorry. We see Daniel and Sam coming in after rehearsal. Daniel's trying to enter a code on a keypad, but the alarm has already gone off. They've installed an alarm system, obviously, since the incident at Christmas. Amanda runs in with a baseball bat with Anthony not far behind her. Hey, Anthony's in this season. Hey, Anthony, how you doing, bud? We haven't seen you in a hot minute, but I'm glad you're back. Um, He has opinions about technology, as usual. He said they should have sprung for the facial recognition. Of course. Yeah, not good enough to have it on every phone and every other device in your house, is it, Anthony? We also learn when Amanda calls the alarm system to let them know that everything's okay, that her password is Outlander. I mean... Who among us, right? Yeah, I'm going to have to have have our password changed as well. So anyway... What's the combination? One, two, three, four, five. It's amazing. I've got the same combination on my luggage. Uh, but enough about that. It's wine time Boy, in the LaRusso Man's kitchen. We are overdue for some wine time at the LaRusso Man's, am I right? I'm telling you. It's a chill hang, but it's also kind of a distressed chill hang as Amanda is kind of opining that she's still a mental wreck after Tori made a literal wreck out of the house. She mainly blames Tori. And we've learned that they didn't go to the police, right? Daniel talks about that. They could have gone to the police. And Amanda said, Sam needs to move on from this. Their business can't survive a PR nightmare like they've already Mm -hmm. had. So they're going it alone. And this is really hard for Amanda, right? She's our reality effect. She's always been the one who says, this is nuts. Like, we got to do something else. Yeah. But she now understands, as she says in her own words, we're living in the twilight zone. Right. It's Uh, season four. We're way past nuts. Rod Serling is running this show now. There is a fifth dimension, an area which we call the Twilight Zone. And what I really like about the scene is we're really getting to see the family have a grounded reaction to what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's not just kind of being played for the laughs of Amanda's in reality and Daniel's going to go off and do another thing. Like, they're going to have to do this together. And she also asked Daniel how it's going with Captain Eagle Claw. A.K.A. Johnny. Uh, Daniel (laughs) says it's going great. They haven't really beaten each other up yet. So that's progress. Amanda doesn't know if Cobra Kai is really going to shut down if Kreese loses. And Daniel, of course, as ever, is overconfident in his resources and in Miyagi-Do. He says that they've got LaRusso 2.0 fighting for them, so Kreese is going to lose. Unbeknownst to Daniel, Sam is listening from the next room. 
Daniel says that this is his whole premise of the season. But this is really interesting here. We learn a lot about Daniel's motivation because he says that everyone in the valley will see that Crease is wrong, including Robbie. So mm. Daniel's got something to prove here. This is an ego thing about having lost a student, right? As much as it is about saving the soul of the valley. Cut to Sam, who looks concerned. She does. Now, cut to Casa del Johnny, where Johnny is putting some spices on a plate of fajita meat. Wow. Johnny taking the rare opportunity to make a meal that is not entirely composed of lunch meat. Johnny is sitting at the table at his apartment with Miguel, Rosa, and Carmen. He's hosting a family dinner because, of course, Johnny and Carmen are kind of into each other, y'all. Oh, kind of is an understatement they're into each other the way johnny is into this mango salsa that he slops on yaya's plate here well let's be clear johnny thinks that he's making an authentic dinner but what he's really making is food from the chili's website because johnny doesn't understand that that basically kind of like mex fast food fusion is not the same as mexican mm-hmm. food is not the same as ecuadorian food yeah and Miguel's grandma and Carmen kind of sass about it in Spanish as Johnny is plating the food. And pouring the giant vat of mango salsa on all the plates. Here, try this. Spicy mango. It's like the old country. I could destroy some mango salsa right now. But well, you're Car- right, it's not authentic. Carmen thinks it's a sweet gesture. But Yaya is not into it. I mean, they all see that it's a sweet gesture, but also it's food that johnny made from the chili's website (laughs) anyway moving on only the best but then that's not the most embarrassing thing that happens at this dinner because for some reason (laughs) miguel starts dropping hints about johnny's big meeting with Allie at the end of the previous season well what's happening is that carmen is focusing on the fact that she wants miguel to be safe and because of his injury and miguel doesn't want to deal with that right so for miguel it's a convenient pivot and actually the pivot is served up by his grandmother who's going to tease him a little bit about how he likes doing karate with his girlfriend an equally embarrassing topic for miguel what better way to change the subject than to talk about johnny's love life that's right big mistake Mm-hmm. i mean i'm not the only one who's getting back together with an ex huh, sensei miguel trying to change the subject parries to johnny and Allie, and goes over the instagram pr campaign that they mounted in season three in season three complete with johnny in front of the mural johnny eating sushi a disaster miguel wants them to know about the cool pictures johnny looks really uncomfortable miguel thinks johnny's just being modest but really miguel has no clue that johnny has other reasons for wanting miguel to shut up uh good guide miguel read the room Miguel really has Daniel's heart and Johnny's smarts. I like that the show immediately cuts from here to Johnny and Carmen talking in the kitchen doing dishes, right? This isn't held out for tension. Johnny wants to strike first and tell Carmen, listen, here's what happened on the night of the LaRusso house destruction. He wants to tell her he was coming to tell her he loves her. But Carmen puts the brakes on it. I think it's better that we don't rush into anything with everything that's happened and everything that's still happening. Carmen had her jets cooled, but good by this whole deal and the bombshell that was dropped over dinner. Yeah. But enough about that. It's time to cut back to Terrence's house where we see on the approach from the 101, we have Crease walking up 
to the edge of the gate where it says no trespassing. Just another special op for John Kreese. Kreese never met a no trespassing sign he didn't like, so he just waltzes right in to see a maid struggling on the west lawn, and just as she's scrambling to pick up something that she dropped over, saunters Terry Silver. He's going to help her out, but then as the two lock eyes, we get flashbacks to the opening of Karate Kid 3. Just to remind everyone exactly who we're talking about. Say it, Cobra Kai. Never dies. Bet your ass. Kreese begins his siren song to Terry, right? This is how Kreese operates. He comes in, gives a talk, kind of we worming well, his... he starts by faking his own death. Well, Then yeah. he appears out of nowhere. That's then... true. That's true. Yeah. Then, with some sort of, like, with some guitar flourishes that make him sound like he's from an old western, mm-hmm. but also maybe an evil genie at the same time. Yeah. Also a little bit like Ka in the Jungle Book. Like, he's going to hypnotize yes. you and put the squeeze on you. And he begins to lay into it with Terry, except that he turns to see that Terry's yard is full of people. Full of hipsters, specifically. I see ponytail guys. I see... Ladies in flowy bohemian dresses and way too much chunky jewelry. One of the pretty people comes up to greet him. Her name is Cheyenne, and and she's clearly co-hosting this event and, and has a relationship with Terry. So Chris presumes this means Terry is married. But Cheyenne, who is played by Salome Azizi, says she and Terrence... We're not married. Terrence and I are enjoying the journey for now. Cheyenne is my new favorite character, and she offers Crease a mimosa, and Crease, in a rare show of charm, says, How about a mimosa? How about two? Ooh. Oh, Crease is the ultimate charmer. Terry is not charmed. He's trying to get rid of Crease, but Crease just goes along with it, accepts that mimosa, and is settling in for the long haul. He flashes a eat-shit grin to Terry, uh, which is just delightful, because that's not a gear I normally expect to see out of Crease, but I'm delighted. Meanwhile, at Miyagi-Do, Johnny and Daniel are telling the students that they realize that teaching opposing viewpoints at the same time can be confusing. So they discussed it and come up with a solution. They're going to divide and conquer, Johnny says, by having Eagle Fang train out front with Daniel in the back with the Miyagi-Dos. That's right. Uh, Miguel protests. He thought that... I thought we were stronger working together. PolitiFact equals true, but Daniel and Johnny are a little too myopic to see it right now. Well, they're going to work together, but separately. Mm. Johnny's going to teach folks to sweep legs by having everyone sweep Hawk's leg. First of all, it's delightful to see Johnny sweep a leg to demonstrate, right? Always great to see Billy Zabka doing the bread and butter of Cobra Kai. Hawk tries to apologize, but Johnny tells Hawk talks cheap, so everybody gets a kick in on Hawk. Now we cut to Cobra Kai, where Robbie is bench-pressing with his thoughts. And he's interrupted by a wild Tori appearing. Tori chastises Robbie for not having a spotter with his weights, but she sets a new weight record herself with a massive chip on her shoulder. She thinks that Robbie needs to come along and fall in with Cobra Kai, and that... Well, at least I'm not the one straddling the fence. Girls like Sam LaRusso think the whole world revolves around them. And why shouldn't she? We didn't need any more evidence of this, but Tori just drives home that all Sam has to do is make a puppy dog face and she gets what she wants. Not actually true of Sam's life experience. Sounds like Tori needs to go read Mr. Miyagi's Rock. Mmm, indeed. Now, as the devil on every angry guy's shoulder, she's chiding Robbie for sticking up for Sam because no one's ever told Sam no, according to Tori. 
a true student of crease right so now having said that to manipulate robbie into thinking that sam's pulling one over on him she's gonna say if you're gonna stay on defense this isn't the right dojo for you and now robbie has a couple things to think about cut back to terrence house where everyone's having a great time on the deck out back by the pool we see crease attempting to eat something that Cheyenne says, It's a vegan tofu skewer. Totally organic. Just uh, dip it in the cilantro cashew sauce to die for. That's right. As Chris is trying to explain, he was in the military with Terrence, and they had like a whole movie together. Uh, <laughs> we spot Kevin Allison from the state next to him. But really, he's a fancy lad. I realize that you are most likely the product of lower class inbreeding, but perhaps you could help me. Uh, you know what you are? You're, you're one of those little uh, fancy lads, aren't you? <laughs> Boy, you're cute. He is here to tell Kreese that he has a Habsburg jaw. I've never seen one quite so perfect. We also learn that Terrence has been VCing Cheyenne's mindfulness app. So we get a little glimpse at the kinds of things that Terry has been up to since the old Dynatox days. Yeah, Cheyenne sees this mindfulness app as a didactic tool for students who don't have access to mindfulness in classrooms like they do in California. Outside of California, no regular chicken suit wearing. Right. Certainly not at dances. And no mindfulness classes. So she's doing this for kids in Ohio. (laughs) <laughs> who might not have access to the same kind of mindfulness techniques. That's true. I wonder if she would uh, be so gung-ho about this if she knew that her mindfulness app was being paid for using toxic waste profits. <laughs> I'm sure that Cheyenne is the kind of person who thinks you can meditate the toxins away. Mm. Always looking for his end, Kreese likens the educational aspects of Cheyenne's app with the work that he and Terrence used to do teaching kids karate. Yes, exactly. To which Cheyenne replies, You did mention something about a karate team once. What was it called again? The Vipers? Kevin Allison from the stage. Emil the Hipster chimes in with, I had no idea you had a karate face. Emil the Fancy Lad is charmed by the idea that Terrence had a karate face, but of course, for Kreese, karate is not a phase, it's a way of life. Tell me about it. Now we cut to Miyagi-Do, where Daniel is in the meditation room on the mat, telling the students that they need to be in control, having the students close their eyes, go through a relaxation exercise. As Daniel is helping coordinate with the students to relax, we hear Johnny outside. Stop whining like a little bitch. Get up. Every time that Daniel tries to get the students to focus, we hear Johnny saying something ridiculous and his exercises outside where the students are kicking the crap out of Hawk. Breathe out. Don't be a pussy. Punch him in the face. (coughs) Try not to be distracted. Yeah, the students are still beating up Hawk. Johnny tells Hawk to walk it off. They walk over to the side of the house where Daniel bursts out to tell Johnny to keep it down. Yeah, we can see Daniel's attempt at having, like, studied patience with Johnny. But, of course... The more Daniel talks, the more fastidious. He actually kind of sounds like C-3PO. No, I will not be quiet, Chewbacca. Why doesn't anyone listen to me? Like, he's so bothered that he he can't train his students. (laughs) One of the funniest lines in the season, Daniel says, I can't train my students if you're shouting obscenities. And Johnny says, Obscenities? Yeah. What kind of bullshit is that? Meanwhile, while they argue and Hawk walks it off, he enters the inner room of Miyagi-Do to get his water out of his bag and sees a picture on the wall. 
He spies an ancient scroll with what can only be described as Okinawan Sparring Deck, the new, the new Miyagi-Do playset. Collect them all. <laughs> Dimitri kindly comes in to provide the exposition and explain all this, but they're both interrupted when Chris and Nate burst in to remind Hawk of all the awful things he did to the gang back in Season 3. Chris makes it clear to Hawk that he should go back to his Eagle Gang because he's not wanted here. They're not here to forgive, and they're certainly not going to forget anything Hawk did. It's really hard to hear anyone being mean or angry at anyone in Mr. Miyagi's Oasis of Calm. They note that Hawk already broke the door just today, but he also stole Miyagi's Medal of Honor way back when, and Dimitri looks pained as Hawk steps off. Jacob Bertrand's acting is something else. He can make me believe that he's sociopathic Hawk one season, and contemplative atoning hawk another hawk contains multitudes we then walk out to the concurrent scene where johnny and daniel are still arguing hawk you know tries to get daniel aside and and tell him he doesn't feel like he belongs here daniel's like what did you expect you burned bridges with pretty much everyone here and of course it's too late then hawk walks off knowing that there's no point now johnny of course blames daniel because our dads are still fighting and they fight and they fight while all the kids who are left look on it's a pretty discouraging scene out here in these miyagi-do streets as sam turns to miguel on the dire straits that they find themselves in at receipt of flats johnny and miguel are walking in from having parked the car and johnny's explaining to miguel that it's just not going to work with daniel yeah he says forget it kid it's Larusso town johnny doesn't believe it he says they're going to have to take down Cobra Kai on their own, but Miguel's already ready for this. He says, What about Rocky Three? And the guitar chord plays, letting us know the snake's awakening, or rather the, the eagle fang is fanging up. Miguel chooses to play the Rocky card, and that definitely gets Johnny's attention, and somebody's got to be the Apollo. Who could it be? Somebody's got to help Johnny defeat Clever Lang. That means I'm the best. But this ball been taking the easy matches. I'll fight him anywhere, anytime, for nothing. Of course, it was Apollo. So Miguel says someone had to reach out first, and that was Apollo. And Johnny doesn't understand why LaRusso can't be Apollo. And Miguel said, because striking first is more badass, right? He knows his stuff, that Miguel. That is definitely for sure. But as Johnny walks off, having gotten some food for thought, we see Miguel grabbing for his phone, and then we cut concurrently to Sam across town in her very nice Mercedes. My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Sam and Miguel are on the phone asking how it went. Clearly, this was a plan. Miguel says he's not sure Johnny went for it. Sam's not sure if her dad went for it. So it looks like they might have given them the same song and dance. Of course, I'm guessing that if Miguel told Johnny that striking first is more badass... Sam probably told Daniel that being the the bigger guy was more Miyagi-like. <laughs> Indeed, and who would disagree it, with that? Yeah. She was like, Dad, you can be the most zen, and Daniel said, Zen? Nobody can be more zen than me! The most zen in the world! Indeed. Um, Maximum zenitude. Indeed. So Sam sounds trepidatious here, not only for her plot with Miguel, but we see now as the camera cuts around that she's actually sitting in the parking lot of the skate park, watching Robbie with his skateboard. This is another part of Sam's plan. Sam's brilliant plan. She knows this isn't going to go over well, but she still has to try, so she approaches Robbie and wants to tell her that she's sorry for all that happened to him and to ask him a question. Yeah, unfortunately, the venom that Tori put in 
Robbie's ear back in the previous scene is still dripping out. Sam wants him to come back and bring unity to the force, but Anakin is just not having it. Yeah, she tells Robbie that she came here every day after he ran away, and she wants to make it clear that she never stopped caring about him. But, of course, Robbie throws back in her face that she never stopped caring about Miguel either. Robbie's still being possessive about this, and he's got hard feelings. And he says it's a choice, and she chose. Now, this sets up her counter-argument, which is that he doesn't have to make the wrong choice. And she also says, just like Padme said once to Anakin, You're a good person. Don't do this. And Robbie parries back with, My dad also had a choice, and he chose to become a drunk loser who still hasn't figured out his own life. For Robbie, Johnny just wants to have a relationship with him so that he, Johnny, can feel better about himself. Sam is put in the strange position of standing up for Johnny, saying that he's trying to change, her dad is too. She adds that if Robbie could come back, it could really bring everybody together. Robbie, still with a scar on his head from when Johnny threw him against that locker inadvertently last season, has a look of real satisfaction on his face when he tells Sam that, Well, then it looks like I get to be the first person to ever tell you this. You're not getting what you want. Yeah, Robbie really revels in being able to say that he'll be the first person to deny her what she wants. And Sam, being ever the defiant LaRusso, snaps back, Okay, just remember, this was your choice. And she's right about that. That's going to come back to haunt Robbie, I think. Speaking of haunted individuals... Meanwhile, at Terrence's house, we see Kreese and Terry standing on a balcony, looking out at the sea. The party is over. Kreese is saying it's a nice view, and he guesses you get what you pay for. And this is where Terry asks... Is that what you want, John? A check? So Terry thinks that Kreese is here just for money. Well, but not just for money. Kreese is here, he says... I want to finish what we started. We learn that Kreese bailed on Terry, too. Terry said, finish what we started before you vanished. And I love this moment where Kreese says, well, I was in a bad place. It's like he was in development hell waiting for the right Karate Kid property to bring him back to life. Not incorrect. Terry then turns to tell Kreese that he's doing just fine, but Kreese isn't buying it. The Terry Silver that Creasy would have kicked the crap out of Fancy Lad number one. Gosh, what a sweet little outfit. Is it your little spring outfit? (laughs) Hey, would you like to buy a monkey? Exactly. Creese plays the Nam card again, saying that when they got back from Nam, they had hippies disrespecting them, and they made real progress with Cobra Kai. That's the prequel movie I would have liked to have seen. Kreese wants Terry to keep in mind that Kevin Allison from the state would have gotten his ass kicked for calling Cobra Kai adorable back in the day. Kreese really is laying it on thick with Terry here. That's why we started Cobra Kai. And we see Terry taking it in. He both doesn't trust Kreese, but is being affected by what Kreese is saying. Kreese says there's a whole new generation out there. They can use what we know for evil. But now Cobra Kai is back in ascendancy. Except for one thing. The only thing standing in their way, he says, is Daniel LaRusso. And I love this moment because Terry goes, Danny boy? Yeah, and you see a flash of the Terry Silver face from Karate Kid 3. Exactly. And then Kreese goes on to explain that Daniel and Johnny have teamed up, which Terry is incredulous about that Kreese is champion and Daniel LaRusso are working together. Yeah, so even though Terry has never met Johnny, Terry is aware of Johnny to a degree. So Kreese wants to know if Terry's going to come with him, but Terry says no. This is a really nice moment, right? Where we're going to see Terry's going to be a little more complicated. It's not going to be that easy. 
Yeah, exactly. Terry's not just gonna run back. But then we get the reveal of all reveals. Uh, a piece of fan canon now made true canon as Terry laments, I was so hopped up on cocaine and revenge. But he had to build himself back up. I spent months terrorizing a teenager over a high school karate tournament. It turns out that he actually was coked out of his mind throughout the <laughs> events of Karate Kid 3, and frankly, I believe it. It sounds insane just talking about it. I believe it too, man. And just to make sure that the audience is also aware, we get a super cut of Terry at his most manic in Karate Kid 3. He doesn't just talk about being coked up, though. He talks about doing screwed up things. He says he tortured a teenager for months on end. He's talking about Daniel. Exactly. So, so while he has no love for Daniel LaRusso, he also doesn't want to be a torturer, or at least doesn't want to be the guy who tortured somebody. That's right. And Vulture asked Thomas Ian Griffith if he knew that Terry was on coke in the 80s. He doesn't say yes, but what he says is they all appreciate the absurdity that this happened and that Terry as a character can reflect back on that time through that lens as having been this sort of screwed up dude. It's far more rewarding to have Terry not coked up now. <laughs> But reflecting on those times so that we can see the uphill climb Crease has to bring him back on board. It sounds insane just talking about it. That's how it Terry sounds when I try to says. describe Karate Kid Part Three to my friends. Yes, we we did a whole we did a whole episode about it. I still don't believe it happened. And say, man, I had a much better experience watching this than I anticipated. Because I hate the villain and rarely see this film. Well, that's very kind and generous of you, and we'll do a much more in-depth review at the end, but I find this movie delightfully cheesy. He says he hit rock bottom after that. He built himself back up. He got his ass into therapy, and he found clarity. So, for Terry, Kreese's disappearance was the best thing that ever happened to him. Kreese pushes kind of the same buttons with Terry uh, that Tori does with Robbie. Yeah, he says people expect men of their age, which is hilarious because actually Thomas Ian Griffith is younger than Ralph Macchio. But Cree says people expect men of our age to just ride off into the sunset, but he's still got some fight left in him. And then he delivers one of Colin's favorite TV lines of all time. Please thank Cheyenne for the tofu. And it's one of the most amazing deliveries I've ever seen. I, I'll go into it in detail in the analysis portion, but rest assured, we have a GIF of it available yeah. if anyone's interested. If you ever need it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you ever need to thank anyone for tofu. Chris walks off, leaving Terry with a lot to chew on. We cut to Casa del Johnny, where Johnny is picking up the phone, doing a Johnny thing of rehearsing how he might apologize to Daniel. But then he's like, ugh, don't apologize. It shows weakness. But then there's a knock on the door, and it is Daniel. Johnny goes to see who it is, and who's there but Daniel holding a six-pack of Coors Banquet. Daniel asks, Too late for a pop-in? He likes the pop-in, too. Just popped in now. I'm a big pop-in guy. Well, it's never too late for a pop-in. No, indeed. Daniel immediately apologizes. He says he knows they got off on the wrong foot, and he's sorry he snapped at Johnny. And Johnny, wanting Daniel just to be the weaker person, I guess, says that he should be sorry. They settle in on Johnny's old-ass furniture, and Daniel gingerly tastes the course banquet, only to look traumatized when Johnny offers him some ham with water running out of it. And Daniel throws out the first olive branch, saying, I understand how difficult it must have been coming to my dojo. This sounds like a couple navigating an extremely weird interfaith marriage. It does. Already Daniel's being presumptuous, right, by being like, coming to my dojo. 
blah, blah, blah. So he's already making it clear how he sees the situation. And Daniel's like, we have to make it work for the sake of the kids. But of course, what Daniel's really trying to say is that Johnny needs to officially join Miyagi-Do. Yeah, Daniel wants Johnny to convert to Miyagi-Do, at least culturally. But Johnny insists on trying to make Eagle Fang happen. Gretchen, stop trying to make Fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Daniel can't take it seriously. Like, Johnny says, why can't you join Eagle Fang? And Daniel's like, my karate has a rich tradition going back hundreds of years. Your dojo is three weeks old. And as Daniel says, sounding like many fans around the world, it sounds like you came up with a name from the poster that hangs above your couch. Your dojo just started three weeks ago in a park. My dojo is as old as the bonsai trees themselves. Indeed. Bonsai tree. Johnny pushes back and Daniel says that it's not costing you a thing. So this is where Johnny's like cutting to the chase with Daniel. It's always about money, isn't it? And Daniel is now resentful that Johnny's driving the 93 caravan around. And now Daniel's angry at Johnny again. And he says, how's this going to work? Johnny looks just over it all. And he says, it's not right. They're done. All, all that's left is to sit here, drink beer and eat a whole chunk of ham in one go. Yeah, it's like the breakup of the Beatles, or like that episode of the Golden Girls when they plan to break up. Of course, for the Golden Girls, we learn they say screw it and work together anyway. The three of us just can't agree on anything. We were not meant to live together. I think you're right. In fact, I know so. This is exactly what happened during the Great Herring War. The Great Herring War? Yes, between the Lindstroms and the Johanssons. Oh, that Great Herring War. <laughs> But, chin up, it's only the first episode of the season, gang. We kind of fade over the valley, time passes, and we cut to the banana boat the next morning. Yeah, we see Sam sitting in the backseat of the banana boat that morning when Miguel comes up and tries to cheer up by pretending to be a chauffeur with a British accent. Good day, my lady. My name is Miguel, and I'll be your chauffeur this morning. Uh, except he has no key, so he can't drive her off. He looks very bright and happy. But Sam can't even laugh. Like, she's pretty beaten up, I think, after that conversation with Robbie and the fact that Daniel wasn't around, so they don't know how well their scheme has panned out with Johnny and Daniel. Miguel settles back into the seat, only to see Hawk passing by with a sledgehammer. Miguel's at peak cuteness this morning, but they spy Hawk at peak sulking as he <laughs> skulks his way around back with that sledgehammer. Is that a sledgehammer? Cut to Cobra Kai, as once again, Kyler is coming in in the middle of a story about a fiesta burrito when they spy, of all people, Robbie, suited up, robed up, barefoot, standing in the middle of the mat, ready to teach him some lessons. Yeah, this scene is sort of blocked from the perspective of the Cobra Kai's coming in to find Robbie all suited up and ready to warm him up, which of uh, Kyler finds pretty rich considering that Robbie's never been on their team and Tori's also a little dubious. Robbie says that if any of you can land a hit, I'll go. And uh, this is pretty incredible as all the Cobras run at Robbie and he takes them down one by one in a sort of amped up redo of his fight against Train Cruz in the first season. But now Robbie is a badass karate machine. And this amazing electronic music, this, the track is called Land a Hit. As this amazing electronic music plays and the grunting and the kicking and stuff become sound effects that are percussive with the music, we also get a, a montage of, of a series of flashbacks of Robbie learning all the Miyagi-Do defense. Robbie makes quick work of most of these Cobras. It basically comes down to 
Kyler and another kid. Tori hangs back in the background, kind of watching Robbie's moves. And she's actually the last person standing as she then begins sparring with Robbie, trying to land a hit. All the other Cobras are kind of just squirming on the ground. Robbie flips Tori, but then thinking that she's down, he gets a little too close, and Tori kicks him right in the chin. It's a pretty outstanding shot, but a deal's a deal, and Robbie says, well, you landed a hit, so I'll go. But now Tori's gotten what she wants, right? Robbie has shown up, and he's clearly on their side, so she tells him to stay. Cut to Miyagi-Do, where Johnny is waiting for Daniel when he pulls up that morning, and they're here to decide how they're going to break it to the students, that it's not going to work, right? As our two dads prepare their karate divorce... They're working on their strategy for how to break it to the kids. Yeah. It's so interesting that these guys don't want to disappoint the kids, but at the same time, they're putting these kids up to a ridiculous standard of having to de- decide the fate of the valley. But they can't get anywhere with their conversation, which they're already starting to disagree about, because they hear crashing in the backyard and go running to see what it is to find Hawk with a sledgehammer knocking down a fence. Daniel and Johnny arrived this morning to break up the Beatles, but it turns out the kids are all right and tell Daniel and Johnny that we need to get back to where we once belonged by knocking through a fence, expanding the dojo, and building that Okinawan sparring deck playset. Exactly. Eli is a physics and shop whiz, apparently. An Okinawan sparring deck. Eli's a design whiz. I looked it over and the physics check out. Dimitri and Eli both have big maker vibes. I mean, obviously, Hawk's got to have a 3D printer at home to get his hair to do that every day, right? Yeah. Clearly, someone on the Cobra Kai writing team has listened to Love Can Build a Bridge by the Judds one too many times. Mm. (laughs) At any rate, at any rate, our karate dads don't have the heart to get a divorce after all that, so they pitch in to help all the students. Let's cut back with Cobra Kai as Robbie and Tori now lead the warm-up, and Robbie has a rousing speech of his own. Robbie's telling us he's going to be a double agent to teach Cobra Kai Miyagi-Do Karate so they can beat Miyagi-Do Karate, thus kicking off a new Karate Cold War. They think by working together, they have the advantage. They think that they're better than us. Oh, the Karate Cold War is on, baby, and it's overlaid with footage of the Miyagi-Dos peacefully working together. Uh, Meanwhile, across town, Terry is picking at his macrobiotic meal while Cheyenne tells him to find some wine in the wine cellar. Yeah, as Robbie talks, we see Kreese, who looks defeated from his conversation with Terry, walking in through the special ops room, but he comes into the front to see Robbie warming the students up. Yeah, Robbie's speech, uh, much to Kreese's delight, is very Kreese-like. Yeah, where did he pick that up? I guess he's had a few conversations with Kreese, right? Kreese has some new fire in him now that he sees that Robbie has flipped. Mm-hmm. Kreese had a long face when he walked back into the dojo, but Robbie's his new hope. Meanwhile, at Terrence's house, Terry, in his all-white garb, is coming downstairs to find the wine that Cheyenne ordered. When he looks up to see a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon made by none other than Cayman Estate Wines. Yeah, Terry looks at it, clearly feels some provocation at the sight. It's a real nice Easter egg. And then Terry, just like Daniel with the boba tea in episode four of season one, Terry also does the same kind of back kick and kicks the wine, knocking it against an abstract art on the wall. This is a really loving Easter egg with the wine, right? This is Robert Mark Kamen's wine, Robert Mark Kamen, the original 
writer of the Karate Kid trilogy. Mm-hmm. Also delightful is the fact that when Terry kicks it, he says, Asa! Which is a very Terry Silver thing to say. It was a nice Easter egg while it lasted because Terry then, as you said, kicks it across the room and it is now smashed and broken. And we hear Cheyenne's voice asking Terrence if everything is okay. And he says, yeah. But uh, we see in his face that that he's feeling kind of jazzed and he doesn't quite know what's happening, but something real is going on. Yes, as wine drips down the wall like blood. And end snake. And with that, we conclude Cobra Kai Season 4, Episode 1. Let's begin. And this episode is dedicated to our favorite, Ed Asner. So now, Jenny, I turn to you and ask, as we often do in this part of the program, what did you think of this episode? That was a fun episode, man. It was super exciting to be back in Cobra Kai land, back in the Miyagi-verse. I will confess that the first time I saw it, I was a little irritated because it backpedaled on a lot of stuff that I felt was already there. Like Daniel and Johnny working together and the high we felt going out at the end of season three. I wasn't sad to see Terry alienated from Kreese because that was a very interesting storytelling choice. I think that all the choices make sense and they're more rewarding for the long-term arc of the show. But I was like, oh, oh, we're going to backpedal on some things that I thought were already okay. All right reset my expectations i feel the same way i kind of hinted at it during the recap section but yeah those are definitely a couple of little minor red herrings that kind of get thrown our way like at the end of season three we assume that daniel and johnny are working together oops turns out they're not at the end of season three crease calls terry and we're like "Ooh, they're gonna team up and it's gonna get crazy and well it doesn't at least not right away yeah so the things that they kind of teased us with at the very end of season three definitely get we're definitely kind of weird little fake outs and stay tuned because we're not done with these weird little fake outs as the season (laughs) progresses but that's just a couple of interesting examples of them kind of playing with the format and playing with what you can do in this kind of uh streaming serialized world i think one of the things that's great about this show is that at no point in the show have the creative team behind it seemed like they were in a hurry to get somewhere they know how to kind of meet out M-E-T-E, out the the character moments and the progress of the story and the development of the characters in such a way that we feel like we're in the world and we feel like the characters are moving along, but we also can linger in some of their dysfunctions and in some of their challenges to really grasp what they're up against and to see the world enlarge itself, right? They get a lot to work with if they stay in the sandbox and play for a bit so much to work with. It is very interesting that I made the joke about the Okinawan sparring dick playset, because yeah, this does feel very much like uh, Darth Helmet in his room playing with his action figures, whereas <laughs> we've got the entire Miyagi-Do playset, we've got all the Cobra Kai figures, we've got all the Eagle Fang figures, and now we're just going to kind of like mix them up and just see what we can do. And yeah, like it, it leads to some really interesting decisions, some really interesting choices, not the least of which, which is kind of doing some smart work to recontextualize and retcon a lot of the stuff that happened in Karate Kid 3 to make it fit better with this world. I think 
so having said, oh my gosh, they, they hit pause on a lot of stuff and slowed down, seeing Terry Silver be grounded, but also still kind of Terry Silver mm-hmm. was delightful. I didn't want him to come back. I mean, I did, but I also just, it's such a risk with the thing that's going so well to see this wild card come back in. But Thomas Ian Griffith is a true pro, and obviously the folks making the show are total pros, and they know how to ground that character fascinating to see him increase and the politics between them when he was gung-ho all in for john crease and the karate kid part three and now he's not so sure about this right he got burned too yeah i mean i think that is the difference between the storytelling now and the storytelling even at the beginning of cobra kai right when cobra kai started it was almost as if the end of karate kid one happened and then johnny was put in a a freezer (laughs) for 30 years and then he comes out on the other side in episode one of cobra kai where he just kind of wakes up he's still haunted by all those events as though they were yesterday even though it's been 30 years and then i think as the series is kind of warmed up and percolated we're now a little more aware of that passage of time none more so than terry silver who's just like I've completely changed my whole deal since Karate Kid 3. I don't even deal toxic waste anymore. And Kreese is like, who are you even? Yeah. (laughs) You've lost yourself, sir. Indeed. Yeah. So that was delightful. The writing in this episode is super tight. Mm -hmm. The choreography and the conducting between, like, action vibes and contemplative vibes johnny v daniel squaring off with the kids in the middle like it's really interesting Mm -hmm. this episode does so much table setting for every character right and the episode seems to have space for all of them in addition to terry and crease and showing their challenges we we talked a lot during the recap about robbie tori and sam Mm -hmm. miguel and sam all these the kids and how they're holding the weight of the adults' dumb decisions. We get some nice Dimitri and Hawk moments, even though they're in service of the larger narrative. They still get some stuff to do. Well, it lays out a dynamic that's going to be really key this season, which is Hawk and Dimitri have found their way back to each other. Dimitri was all in at the end of season three, and they're not walking that back, right? No. So Dimitri wants to be there for Hawk, but Dimitri doesn't know how to do it quite yet, right? Mm. Because the Miyagi-Dos are so against Hawk, and it's understandable. And Hawk doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore but is just trying to find his way forward so that he can kind of atone and and move things to the next level with these two dojos yeah so that's going to be a theme and hawk makes the most constructive suggestion they've got to put their back into it and create a new space together so that they can train so that's a really neat deal also amanda and her arc is coming to view where she's really struggling And she's trying to find a way to contribute to the situation without making it worse. Mm -hmm. Daniel's way overconfident. Daniel's got something to prove to the wrong people. Like he's trying to prove something to Crease and to Robbie. As opposed to being like, what do my children need? What do they need? How are they doing right now? Yeah. He knows best. He's gone full father knows best. He needs to figure out that it didn't work for Robert Young and it's not going to work for him. So... Beyond that, then there's Johnny, who's sort of on the back foot at the beginning of this season, right? Like, Miguel harshes mellow with Carmen. Now, oh, the boy did he ever. And he's got to figure out a way forward there. Johnny wants to beat Crease too. Johnny knows that Robbie's compromised. He's got a lot on his plate. and The least of which is that ham. God. I mean, ham can only do so much for you, right? Indeed. 
But that said... Wait, why didn't Johnny offer Daniel the leftover fajitas? That would have been a little more. Exactly. I guess there weren't any left. I guess they were really good. Yeah, I'm sure they were. Anyway. At any rate, we see that, first of all, what does Johnny have to prove? I think at first of the season, I don't think Johnny feels that he has to prove anything to anyone. And that's what he has to prove is Mm -hmm. that he still has some learning to do. Mm -hmm. But he's not aware of that. That's the thing, right? Johnny and Daniel's journey has never been more parallel because they have to meet in the middle and they have to learn to get along and both of them have different reasons for never ever ever wanting to get along beyond just the fact that they're the the protagonist and the antagonist of one of the most 80s of all 80s movies conflicts right it's like asking john mcclain and hans gruber to get along it would be an amazing story but you got to do a lot of narrative lifting to get there right that's what the entire series of cobra kai is it's getting us to the point where johnny and daniel might for a minute see eye to eye and kind of teasing us with that for episode after after episode and respect each other and they use such a great work in the on the soundtrack and the composition of using these motifs and having them duel the different sounds the different musical motifs and cues duel each other they need to kind of become in concert with Mm -hmm. one another and with johnny it's that if he can't get respect, how is he going to deal? He can't flee the scene. He's got to stay and fight, which Johnny would do normally when he has his faculties, right? right. When he's brokenhearted, he kind of collapses. But when he's got his faculties, he's going to stay and fight and all that. And he also has to get along with someone in terms that are foreign to him, right? Beyond dominance or aggression. So while Daniel needs to learn how to be openly aggressive without being passive aggressive johnny needs to learn passivity in a way that brings clarity i guess anyhow and also having mentioned amanda because of the first scene where we see them we see anthony who's there knowing what's best for everyone in terms of technology right so we already know that anthony's going to be here this season well i don't think this episode tells us that he's going to be a feature this season again uh, citing precedents, anthony only showed up at the beginning episode and the ending episode of season two so anthony just being in this episode doesn't necessarily say anything. And it was nice to see him, especially when we watched the premiere days and days ago. But they're not telegraphing that he's going to be around in the way that we know he will be. Exactly. So the arcs are pretty clear, right? We've got some main like themes or arcs. One is that, that Johnny and Daniel need to work together, mm-hmm. right? So the call issued to them that yes. they're, they are apparently refusing so far, or, or not aware that they're refusing, is to really see each other as equals yes and listen to one another and share Mm -hmm. they're not sharing well Mm -hmm. terry is is he gonna let his true nature come out that seems to be the the thing he's tasked with this season Mm -hmm. and crease what is his journey this season just based on this episode i mean crease's journey for this episode is He's gotten Cobra Kai back, but it's the thing that the Joker says in The Dark Knight is like, what does the dog do once he's caught the car, right? Yeah. It's like, Kreese got the thing that he wanted, but is it really what he wanted? And if it is, where does he go from here? And everything is also being driven by this this wager that he made with Daniel and Johnny, essentially, that whoever loses the tournament gives up karate forever, right? Yeah. 
But it sounds like, and, and of course, so we have a little extra knowledge, right? But what we know is that Kreese needs to learn that his motivations may not be what he thinks they are. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got this whole song and dance to Terry, but Terry doesn't buy it. And in that, we are also, we, the audience, are with Terry. He's our surrogate. Yeah. So part of it is that Kreese's journey will be acknowledging that there's more to his stake in this fight than he's letting on. Exactly. And for the students, it's quite clear. We've talked about it, but I think that, that Tori hates Sam and and may be incentivized to look beyond her hate. Sam just wants to be safe and to not have this hassle. Mm-hmm. And Robbie is being asked to choose wisely, right? To not let the past determine his future actions. That's what Sam asks him. And I don't know if he's going to figure that out till the end of the season. Because I don't think he understands that if you keep thinking in terms of the past, if you keep reacting to the past, you will repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm-hmm. Do you have an MVP for this episode? Well, before we get to MVPs, I want to do something else. Which is? And now a brief word about the phrase... Please thank Cheyenne for the tofu. Oh, okay. Now, there's <laughs> a lot of hay made about phone aesthetics. And that is the study of beauty and pleasantness associated with the sounds of certain words are you or saying parts that, of words in the, language. Are you saying that thank Cheyenne for the tofu has sent you down a linguistics wormhole? Kind of. I don't know what it is about that phrase, and I think other people have keyed in on this too. Or maybe it's just the way that it's delivered. The way Kreese says, please thank Cheyenne for the tofu, is one, an amazing phrase. (laughs) Two, it tells you everything you need to know about Terry's life, right? Like that one phrase just encapsulates so much. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about it. So it's kind of amazing. In English, the word cellar door is often cited as being the most phonocetic sound that you can have in language. But for me, for all those Cobra Kai fans out there, for all our friends out there listening to Are You Karate King Me? It's please thank Cheyenne for the tofu. Wow. I just want to make sure that everyone can picture this in their mind, that we're sitting at... at at this big drafting table with our mics, and Colin has called up a Wikipedia article on phonesthetics. This article also talks about the difference between euphony and cacophony, right? With euphony, the sounds are perceived as pleasant, rhythmical, lyrical, harmonious. Cacophony, harsh, unpleasant, chaotic, often discordant. So I would say part of what's happening is the tension between the euphonious way in which Martin Cove says, thank Cheyenne for the tofu, and the expression on his face. Ooh, that's true. He is giving kind of a fuck you glare. Which, well, it's not yeah. just a fuck you glare, it's, it's almost pity. Yeah. And so there's a distinction there of, like, the inner turmoil of why is Terry Silver living this way? It would be like looking at a shark trying to become like in a petting zoo Mm. and so it's part of the delivery is so perfect but the reality that it's talking about is deeply fucked up 
Exactly. Yeah. I, I think you've nailed it. And I think that is exactly what people are keying into, whether subconsciously or like me, very consciously, where the phrase, the moment, the delivery, Martin Cove's performance, the shot, the way it's framed, the look that he gives, the fact that we're talking about Cheyenne, who is her own whole thing. Yep. <laughs> the fact that we're talking about tofu, which is delicious. No, like the whole thing all together just makes for this very, to me, euphonic moment. Indeed. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. So, here's the point where I turn our attention to Easter eggs. What is your favorite Easter egg from this episode? Well, as we've discussed, there have been so many. I <laughs> mean, there's the obvious ones, such as the Cayman Estate wine. It's very loving. Yeah. But I, I think, without getting too into the weeds, I mean, my favorite Easter egg has got to be Terry's lamp shading of Karate Kid 3, right? Because, I mean, there's Easter eggs that call back things. There's Easter eggs that are kind of like coded reference to things. But then there's Easter eggs that completely, like, recontextualize entire movies or entire TV series. In the early Thor movies, they're going through, like, the treasure hall in in Asgard, and we pass by, the like, an Infinity Gauntlet just kind of sitting there, and all the fanboys are just like, oh, Infinity Gauntlet, it's gonna be a thing! But then later we learn, like, that was a fake or whatever. I feel like they've kind of done that kind of turn for the Karate Kid movies now, where it's like... Yes, Terry was coked out of his mind in Karate Kid 3, and that is now canon, and now you can watch that movie secure in the knowledge that just off camera there was a huge Scarface pile of cocaine every single time. <laughs> I guess I have two Easter eggs, because one is, well, I loved the Cayman Estate Wines, and we freaked out when we saw that. That was a very good one. That was really, really, really good. My, my joke answer is Terry's Cocaine. Sure. And, okay, oh, I don't know. I think I might have to stick with the Cayman Estate wines. Although, that feels weird because it's not an in-world Easter egg. It's a it's a production reference in a way. No, no. I feel like that is a quintessential Easter egg. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if there weren't actually Cayman Estate wines that you could buy, which are, I mean, maybe for a really nice Christmas gift, tell her you love her with cayman estate wines but like but even if that didn't exist they could have like faked up a bottle of cayman estate wines and it still would have been amazing right i think it was d delightful we've been trying to get that wine for a while and i mean we will we're just waiting for the right time we're waiting for someone in austin to supply it without the shipping costs that it will incur yeah yeah but so that was pretty great I also would like to give two honorable mentions. One is Terry going, Asa, when he kicks the wine bottle. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that I'm excited to see Robbie skateboard again. Ah, yes. And that's an Easter egg in the sense that it's like, hey, remember that Robbie is the skateboarding kid that we learned about in season one? And the reason why I think it's really great is because it's a reminder of who Robbie is beyond his karate. Yes. Right? That Robbie had a thing that he loved that wasn't karate before. It pre-exists this show. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of him that that thus far Cobra Kai has not corrupted. Exactly. And John Kreese has not corrupted. So that's a little reminder that there's something in him that can be reached, even if 
he seems utterly compromised by this dark side turn he's doing. Even if you walk up to him while skateboarding and try to convince him to come back to the light side of the forest, you still know that there's something there. Well, Sam had the misfortune of saying there's nothing I want more. Which, Whoops. Which Robbie, the gauntlet being thrown by Tori to not give Sam what she wants. Indeed. He couldn't resist hurting someone as much as he felt hurt inside, right? That's mm. what that is. So, yeah. So, I love the skateboard and... I love the wine. And I love Terry, <laughs> despite never, ever, ever wanting to encounter that guy in real life. Absolutely. It's fun to watch. It's fun to watch. Not so great to live. And we're in for nine more hours of it, so get ready, everybody. So now, Jenny, I turn to you and ask for the final segment of our show, which is MVPs. Well, so, in light of what you've said, is John Kreese your MVP for this episode? Well, I'm not fond of giving John Kreese MVP awards because I feel like MVP awards are encouragement for things. And I I might give Martin (laughs) Cove the MVP if not for the fact that Cheyenne is at this episode. Cheyenne, your MVP? I'm going to give Cheyenne my MVP this time because, again... You've you've been using the mindfulness app, haven't you? Here's the thing about Cheyenne, as portrayed by Salome Azizi. She only has a couple scenes to work with, but her delivery, her whole affect, her whole thing tells you so much about that character... Like, you learn volumes about this one character. It's a bit like the original Karate Kid movies, to where it's like, we only have, like, people in certain scenes, but you kind of get, like, their whole thing from their one scene. It's a bit like B.D. Wong in Karate Kid 2. <laughs> he comes in, delivers one line, but so much about that character from that one line. I feel like, in a weird way, Cheyenne is kind of like the modern version of that kind of character. Was like, she doesn't have a lot to do in this episode, but she throws... 100% of herself into those few scenes and everything you need to know and it's great. I will, I'm thinking about my MVP but I want to I want to yes and you on the Cheyenne bit because I think that the another thing that character does that's really important is in the past we've seen these sort of apparently flaky or vapid vacuous aspects of California life that gets satirized in this show. Like, we've seen the mindfulness thing before with the yoga people who were were co-leasing Johnny's space or subleasing the dojo to do yoga in it when Johnny needed money. Or we've seen it with uh, Counselor Blatt and her vapid approach to helping students be nicer to each other. But with Cheyenne, we see that there's power behind this stuff that can be seen as flaky that someone like johnny might dismiss as flaky cheyenne has a ton of power and it's it's by her alliance her journey with terry as terrence Mm -hmm. and she she has money and she does things with it so this is a nice way for the show to show layers in the world Mm -hmm. by having cheyenne and all the pretty people and all the fancy lads living out that world and terry is in it and this is a world that knows nothing of karate karate is adorable they don't understand that they could die at any moment if they don't know karate that's right they've they've never been in the school hallway fight yeah or the tournament or the larusso mance fight exactly they don't know how harriet can get out here in these miyagi-do streets exactly so she does that work as well for the show which is a big deal Mm -hmm. my mvp for this episode and i don't think i'm going to be saying it again this season despite ample reasons to consider this person it's terry silver 
Mm. And here is why. Because Thomas Ian Griffith, it might have been no work at all for a Renaissance man like that to play this character, but it was such a crapshoot to bring Terry back and to mm-hmm. ground him in this way. And while we know the team could do it, it's still something to see it. If Terry hadn't come back, showed real ambivalence mm-hmm. and sort of been able to move between the two worlds, pushed back against John Kreese, given us that incredible monologue that not only justified Terry's current reality, but made Karate Kid Part 3 make sense. That is an incredible achievement by a character. And Terry does all of that in this episode with with an assist from Cheyenne and the Tofu. So on that note, we'll wrap it up here. Don't forget to like, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Don't forget to rate us on the Apple Music Store or in Overcast or on Spotify, if that's even a thing on Spotify. I haven't checked lately. But if you want to be part of this conversation, like our page on Facebook, hit us up at at Karate Kid Pod on Twitter, where we're always posting dank memes such as the thank Cheyenne for the tofu gif these are all great avenues to feedback on the show and let us know what you think we're always interested we're always talking to people on twitter and our fellow cobra kai community members so please join us for the journey no we will enjoy the journey together more than even cheyenne and terry could imagine yeah if if the last two episodes of this show have not made it clear season four is lit so now is a great time to jump on board indeed next time we will be back with cobra kai season four episode two first learn stand first learn stand and with that I've been Colin Kennedy. I have been Jenny Carlson. And until then, we'll see you around the Miyagi-verse. See you around the Miyagi-verse. And please, please, don't forget to thank Cheyenne for the tofu. This podcast has been produced and hosted by Colin Kennedy and Jenny Carlson. Our music is by Chepo. You can find us at Karate Kid Pod on Twitter and wherever you download podcasts.